Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Fiona Bennett. It's lovely to be here and to be getting ready to put this episode out into the world uh, and indeed putting it out into the world. Ooh, weird sort of <laughs> sense of timing there. I think, I think you're still a bit giddy following our evening in the company of poems, Fiona. <sighs> it's got to be said, as, as one of our audience members said, I have been floating on the river of poetry ever since. Oh, that's good. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, yeah. There were a few writers in the audience, I suppose. So. I mean, listen, we did have we did have a little bit of technical uh, issues. However, I like to think uh, that they didn't get in the way of what was quite an extraordinary evening of poetry. It was indeed. It was indeed. I think one of the other observations that somebody said which which definitely proves that it didn't get in the way although it did for you and I a bit um is uh, somebody said it felt like the readers were just talking to me oh, and I liked that idea of you know poetry reading being being a moment of communication you know I think sometimes we can think we need to kind of declaim the poem or the poem is outside of us or something. This is not, not right. So I was very, very heartened to hear that people felt, they felt, yeah, they felt the connection and the communication of the poems. And we were so blessed with that wonderful troop of readers. Um, we all had a great time. We did, and it absolutely was. Uh, I mean, I, uh, as you mentioned there Faye I think uh, on on the evening you and I weren't particularly able to to fully appreciate what our readers had done but I watched it back later that evening and I was absolutely blown away by our readers uh, I think it's only right and proper we name check them now um, Sasha Dugdale, Roy McFarlane, Roxy Dunn, Patterson Joseph, Andrea Vitsky Slot and Kieran Hines. Is that everyone? That is absolutely the lineup. And your good selfie, of course, read incredibly beautifully, but um, it was uh, it was fantastic to watch. So, yeah, huge thanks to all our readers, just to kind of say that publicly again, for, for giving us their time and for reading so beautifully. It's funny, I was talking to someone earlier today, Fiona, actually, about how the P word can get in the way a bit sometimes you know poetry it can be a bit of a block and I really um, recognize that that resonates with me and yet when you get past the block when you get through it it is just communication and uh, uh, at its most powerful yeah it was a, it was a terrific night yeah and our huge thanks to the amazing audience um, and yeah. followers that came and, we've, and, and all the messages that we had from people and, uh, and obviously, you know, the support that is in there, not just in the donations uh, in the form of the tickets, which makes a, yeah, literally without which we cannot be here doing what you and I are about to do now, which is to share another incredible conversation. But the sort of support that is more than that which is the yeah the leaning in the engaging with poetry in this way the celebrating of as you said on the night the life-affirming act of reading poetry um yeah much thanks to everybody for being being part of part of our community it's really really a great pleasure Talking of great pleasures, Fee, uh, we had the very great pleasure of talking to the fantastic poet Glyn Maxwell 
a number of weeks ago, not long ago now, and uh, we had the most incredible conversation that we're really, really pleased to be able to share with you all today. Fee, do you want to say anything more, or should we just uh, hit play? I think maybe we should just hit play. Let's let the man himself take us in. So you'll be listening to myself and Michael talking about Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost, the poem that's been a friend to Glynn. We have the poem, which is great. Yeah. Can you give it a read for us? I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Oh, fantastic. Fabulous, thanks. Yeah. Frost is hugely uh, important and influential to me. Um, mm. And this one, it's not, it's not the loveliest, it's not the happiest, it's not, um, in a way, it's one of the darkest. And there's a lot of dark poems in Frost. Shall I tell you kind of my history on it? I mean, mm. I came out of university very kind of lazy and um, with, with a sort of a <laughs> callow, slick kind of, oh, I can write poems, let's do that. Let's, let's be clever and difficult and all the things people are at that age. And it was um, when I was in Boston uh, and I was Derek Walcott's student, and he turned me on to Auden. You know, he, he couldn't believe that I'd never, that I didn't know much Auden. So then I absolutely delved into Auden and, and got to know it all really well. And it was hugely important for me. And then at some point I, I, I was writing poems into magazines and they, and they were sort of joking about, you know, I remember the guy at Verse in Scotland said, we'll take this poem from... Glenn Maxwell, will take this one from W.H. Maxwell. And, and I thought, OK, he's taking a piss now. And, and it, it does, that, that is, does now sound like a, an Auden tribute act. Uh, and it's something I've got to stop. <laughs> I, I loved uh, what Auden could do formally because I felt that he had the whole of the history of English literature in his, in his ability to wield form uh, in the right way and the most powerful ways. But Auden also was profoundly intellectual and like knew an awful lot in history, psychology and religion. And he had an awful lot in his quiver that I didn't have. Um, when I started to read Frost, I thought you could, you could um, sense somebody walking across a field. You could sense the air in, in Frost. You sense the weather and the light in Frost. Whereas Auden, I, I always thought, was looking from above. Mm. Um, in the most beautiful and, and the most astute ways possible. I mean, I th I've always thought that Auden is kind of by far the wisest poet of the 20th century. But, but Frost in his own way is, is up there too. But it's not all from book learning, as he might have put it. Mm. <laughs> so when I, I, I sort of immersed myself in Frost, it wasn't so much reading, it was listening. I, I got one of the, those old Cademon vinyl you know, records mm. uh, that they made in the 50s and 60s. And it was all in Frost's voice. A very ringing and resonant voice. Um, I thought he read really well. 
but my acquaintance with Acquainted with the Night was really from just listening to it over and over. Mm. And it was quite a lot, a lot of years after that, I started to realise how central it is to me. Because I think when I started as a student, when I started, when I started teaching sort of 30 years ago, uh, I just had an instinct that there was something about formal poetry that was to my taste, that was my temperament. And I didn't understand really unpatterned poetry or free verse as people sometimes call it. I didn't really understand that and see how it could be particularly memorable. And actually I still don't. And um, mm. I've now lived long enough to see it not being memorable and, and, <laughs> and you know, certain elements of it not surviving their generation as far as I can see. But the, the years of teaching and of writing it as well made me much more open to other styles, m- much more open. And particularly these last years of teaching, the spectrum of different styles you get in the students. Um, I learn from that all the time. And I, I, I still can't accept a poetry that has no sense of form but I can definitely t- take poetry where the form has sort of been shattered or fragmented as long as there's there's a shadow of or, or an echo of what what form has been shattered you know th- th- that I can always get. That's incredible that that listening the sound of it and the listening to it yeah. you know right from the beginning of having the records and and even just hearing you read it and hearing you talk about it you can sort of feel the importance of that sonic aspect of the form. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't been thinking about that, but you're absolutely right. That the, Just even the scratchiness of the record, you know, that I'd recorded with all the scratches. So the white space around the poem was actually that sort of crackly silence that you get on records. And, and, and I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, that's really interesting to me because that thing of the crackling on the record and that space and you were talking earlier about the difference of Auden and Frost and the sense of presence is the difference is that you feel it's alive more in the frost that you are there on the street Mm. can you go back to kind of that early falling in love with poetry was that aspect of poetry important to you that idea that somebody could in a few lines on a page make a space come alive I, I don't think consciously. No. I think I entered into poetry in, in a fairly different way to most people. I was always, I mean, I think it started with the romantics. I mean, I, the first poet I was trying to emulate was really Byron. I, I wanted to be funny and formally complex um, at the same time. So when I started writing, I wrote like it was the 1820s. I really did. I mean, I, and I'd look at the uh, big anthologies of the day from the 80s. And I just thought, I'm never going to fit into this because I just thought, why aren't they writing about sunsets in, in rhyme like I am? <laughs> why aren't they doing that? Because they're still beautiful and rhyme's still beautiful. Mm. Um, so I, I began in quite a nostalgic place, I think. But what then happened is that the, the reason Auden hit me with such impact via Walcott w- was that Auden showed that you could you could keep the forms alive and make them sound contemporary, but you could also talk about telephones and motor cars, which obviously mm. Byron couldn't. Mm. So uh, I, was, I was nervous about doing that until I came across Auden, and Auden was the answer to everything. Now you can write about the world you know, mm. but I, it became, how, how do you wield form in the world you're in? Mm. And, and the, the reason Acquainted with the Night is, in, is central to that thinking is that it's about the most formal frost poem there is, because not only is it a sonnet, I mean, it's not a classic 
eight and six sonnet, but it's still a pretty classic sonnet. It's also in Terzarima, and it's really tight. It's all full rhymes, and it's it's all. Um, Sorry, Clem, what was yeah. that word you used? Terzarima. So, so, yeah, Terzarima. Could you explain that? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, so it's um, third rhyme. It's the the stanza form that all of uh, the Divine Comedy is written in. So what it has is, if you look at the the frost, it's um, the rain. The second line um, rhymes twice more on the fourth and the sixth. So the rhymes go every other like that, and the end is a couplet. But usually, Terzarima goes on for reams and reams. But it's an incredibly sort of woven form. Acquainted with the night is in three line stanzas or tercets. You see that the the middle line of every stanza brings in a new rhyme. Yeah, the first line is the second iteration of that stanza. And the last time you see that rhyme, it's at, at the end. So it's a mathematical pattern. Mm. But it, it, to me, it's always seemed as like DNA. I mean, it just like rolls on like mm. timelessly. And that's how it works in Dante. And, and my feeling about the metaphor of that form is that the, the new rhyme arrives. You know, it's not a rhyme when it first arrives because it's not rhymed with anything, it's new. Mm. And it's like a new thought. And then the, the second time it comes is at the top of the next one, and then it's like that de- thought developed. And then the third time, it's like that thought left behind. So in the, in the meantime, another thought has come in and taken its place. So you, it's, it's a kind of metaphor for the way thoughts roll in and, mm. and, and, and are with you, and then they go away again. And, and I also think it's, um, it's a great walking meter. Mm. And of course, Acquainted with the Night is literally a walking poem. Yeah. You know, it's literally, you can hear him walking through the night in a small American town with no one around. And something about that idea of the way the thoughts arrive that you've just described also feels very pertinent to the night. Yeah. That, 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 that somehow things can kind of arrive and then something else comes in to take its place. And you know, that, that feels very in the middle of the night, that sort of liminal space. Yeah, when your thoughts aren't competing with anything, mm. they're sort of left alone to just move as they will. In fact, it's, this is one of those poems that I almost feel should be printed in white on black, on black paper. Ah, you know, yeah. Then you'd really get it. I think you'd really, you'd really feel it. So to go on with Acquainted with the Night, I felt that given, you know, it's all very metrically regular and the rhyme's obviously regular because it's Terturima and they're very simple rhymes and the vocabulary is simple yeah. and... At the same time, it feels absolutely psychologically acute and authentic and true. It doesn't feel like anything is being sacrificed to make the form work. And the more I thought about form, the more I wrote about it, the more I taught, the more I wrote the poems, I, I felt it's corporeal. It's, it's bodily. Mm. Form is bodily. It's, 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 it's an expression of the creature, whether it's um, the footsteps of meter or the breaths of the lines. Yeah. Um, and then what, what you can do by then ch- uh, varying them, um, mm. you, you know, in terms of making a psychology. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're really putting me in mind of how when, um, as an actor, when you work with Shakespeare, you become aware of how much the form is telling you. And those moments when he breaks from the pentameter, that there's a reason for that, when, you know, um, and that it is physical, form is physical, and the, and the voice is a physical thing, as you say, the breath and all the rest of it. And it's, uh, they're completely indivisible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one informs the other, and yes, that's absolutely what's going on here. And, you know, and he's, he's gliding around that in this poem, isn't he? Because there is the person walking, but there's also the scene there's also, yeah. you know, there's, there's what's around. So in a sense, the scenery is also 
has a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It, it's, it's remarkably coloured in, isn't it, as a landscape, given how austere the poem sounds. And it comes from this sort of thumping, sad, sounds like a voice of, of depression or dismay and so on. But, but you know, you can, further city light, sadder city lane, you see it all. Um, and, and there's all these rhymes that, you know, end with, was it go night rain light lane beat explain feet and then you have this in the third stanza you have this new rhyme cry mm-hmm. and it's the first time it's open the first open vowel in in at the end of any line and and it, of course it's when far away an interrupted cry so then that is him hearing something from another street came from houses from another street it's the one open thing until you get to goodbye and sky obviously and there's this fantastic one luminary clock against the sky and then, well, the most famous repetition in Frost is obviously miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Mm. Yeah. And I remember having the revelation that because that wasn't a repetition, um, because the second time you say it, you're saying it in a world where it's just been said before. So it could hardly be more, it could, it could hardly be less of a repetition. <laughs> it made me think actually there is no repetition in poetry, that once you deploy a word a second time, it, it's not really the same thing at all. Mm. And, and this is a very good example of that, to start the poem with I have been one acquainted with the night, which is like just sort of saying that at a cocktail party. Yeah, I've been one acquainted with the night. But then you get this poem, sort of dark existential misery, and by the end it's I have been one acquainted with the night. You know, <laughs> the hell yes. Now you, you know what he means. You know yes. what he means. There's some, there's some desolation and insomniac desolation that, that he experiences a lot. And the choice of acquainted with the night. I love that, acquainted yeah. with the night. And he doesn't say, I am. I have been. been. Yeah. I have it's been. It's a really great use of tense, isn't it? Yeah. And, and then, you know, the first five lines of this poem start with, I have. Yeah. I have been one acquainted. I have walked out in rain. I have. And, and they all, um, all those first four are just simply sentences. The line is a sentence. Yes. As if, I, I can't say more than this. I can't go further. I've, you know, I've walked out in rain. Then there's a dash, which is almost like describing his walk, and all it ends with is back in rain. So mm-hmm. it meant nothing. It did nothing. Mm-hmm. I've outwalked the further city light, but then the stanza ends. There's a break. It's like so that white space between the tercets is like, well, that led to nothing too. <laughs> I've looked down the sadder city lane, and then so you sort of see that mm-hmm. the lane, uh, but again, nothing comes of that. I've passed by the watchman on his beat. And drop my eyes, unwilling to explain. Explain what? He doesn't say. Just mm. whatever it is, he won't explain it, that either. And then the, I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet. I was I think that's amazing too. I've stood still and stopped the sound of feet because somehow the sort of echo. After he says stopped, he still says the sound of feet, yes. which is the odd, an odd way round. So I guess mm. it's it's the sound. It's both the echo of his feet on the on the street. I've stood still and stopped the sound of feet. So it's also the echo in the head. I think mm. when you're alone at night. Yeah. Will you keep going for me? Yeah. Because I'm through I'm the poem. Sort of, yeah, yes, yeah, please. Because yeah, yeah. I'm sort yeah. of intrigued. Um, uh, and stop the sound of feet. When far away and interrupted cries. Then you have that lovely open vowel. So he stopped and then. An interrupted cry. An interrupted cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something dramatic going on yeah. somewhere yeah. that doesn't involve him. Came <laughs> yes. so over houses from another street. This is another important thing for you know uh, young new poets. 
is how plainly you can describe something. Just say houses, just say another street, and everyone has a picture. Everyone yeah. gets that somehow. Yeah. They get yeah. their own houses and their own street, but you don't need any more. You don't need any adjectives. Mm. Came over houses from another street. And then another break, and, and the break there, the white space there is, is that about me? Is that someone calling me back? Mm. Or someone saying goodbye? And the next line is, but not to call me back or say mm. goodbye. Mm. So the return of the, the line stamps that out but not to call me back or say goodbye. So no human connection there. Mm. And further still, further away than those other houses yeah. at an unearthly height. And then that one luminary clock against the sky. And of course, sky is, it's almost an onomatopoeic word, isn't it? Because it's open like that. You look up mm. stars and then, uh, and then just space. One luminary clock against the sky. Another, the last white space proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. All stop. I have been one acquainted with the night. It's kind of the seal on it. I, th I think it's sort of, it's kind of perfection to me, this, this, this poem. Yeah. You know that, um, what you were saying about the thoughts and the terzarima and it's like it comes and then it, you sort of, pro it's processing, isn't it? It's that idea mm. of processing, which is also what you do when you're walking, you're processing. Mm. For you, where does it begin? You know, is he looking for something? Is he troubled with something? Um, I think he is, is troubled it? with something which he never explains to me or to the watchman. Mm. There's definitely a sense, it's not exactly a cry for help, it's a cry. I think it's a cry, but it's the sort of cry where if you encountered this man, I always, I always like to try and dramatise poems. With poems this good, you can, you can see it. So here, with Acquainted with the Night, it, it, it's encountering a guy somewhere who you've asked him... Um, so, Mr. Mr. Frost, do you do you, uh, do you like them? Do you spend much time at night? Do you walk at? Do you go out? I mean, there's some sort sort of innocent small talk mm. question, mm. and the the answer is I've been one acquainted with the night, and and he never explains mm. what he means by that, but he he tells you the experience of it, and then by repeating the first line at the end, it's almost like saying. That was a stupid question. Yes, I've been acquainted with the night. I think life is terrifying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We do always ask uh, people that we talk to, Gwyn, if this poem were a friend to you, what type of friend would it be? It doesn't think I'm a friend. <laughs> it <doesn't> <laughs> <have> to... <laughs> it's not bothered about you. Yeah, yeah, it's not bothered about me. Um, perhaps, perhaps I'm the watchman. Perhaps I, cross, I pass him on the street, but in the day. I pass him on the street, but in the day. And he doesn't... He doesn't drop his eyes because he's, he's, he's got a place, he's got an errand to run. But he doesn't really tell me anything and he doesn't stop to talk to me. <laughs> it's, um, so I suppose you'd have to say, I mean, this is obviously the obvious thing to, to say, it's uh, somebody in the village who I would really like to get to know better, but sort of sense I never will. Mm. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> who kind of remains enigmatic. Yeah, but I sort of feel I've learned a lot from that guy. Yeah, mm. yeah. I projected a lot on him. <laughs> Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still 
and stopped the sound of feet, when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street. But not to call me back, or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. That was Michael with the gift reading of Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost. A huge thanks to the fabulous Clint Maxwell for hosting us, in fact, uh, for that conversation and giving, as he always does, so generously of his incredible insights, his passion for the creative force of poetry, I feel, I want to say. Um, there's many things you could say about Glynn's work and his teaching and his wisdom, but um, the passion of the creative force of poetry, I've, I've really felt that in, in the conversation with him, and it was a real privilege to, to sit with him with that particular poem. And I hope everybody's enjoyed listening um, as much as we enjoyed being there and recording it. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was really wonderful to to hear it back, actually, Fee, and to to revisit that fantastic afternoon we shared with Glyn. So it's coming towards the end of the year, but there's still a few more things to be done, and we are going to be planning a day of open um, slots for people to book in and have a online conversation with us about the poem that's been a friend to them. So if that's you, if you'd like to talk to us, um, tell us the story of connection that you have with a poem, just get in touch via the website. Let us know that you have a poem that's been a friend to you and that you'd like to talk to us about it. And we'll do our best to find a slot. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We have in fact heard from one listener who has suggested that we might Find space and time within the podcast for an extra poem. And we thought, well, that's an excellent idea. I'm sure we can. So um, we're going to say goodbye. But um, after we've said goodbye, there will be an extra little bonus poem this month. And uh, hopefully that's something we can we can do every episode. So enjoy that. Uh, you'll be hearing Fiona read Emily Bronte's Love and Friendship. Until next month, thank you for listening. Love and Friendship by Emily Bronte Love is like the wild rose briar, friendship like the holly tree. The holly is dark when the rose briar blooms, but which will bloom most constantly? The wild rose briar is sweet in spring, its summer blossoms scent the air. Yet wait till winter comes again, and who will call the wild briar fair? Then scorn the silly rose wreath now, and deck thee with the holly's sheen, that when December blights thy brow, he still may leave thy garland green. <laughs>